Welcome to A New History of Old San Antonio, Episode 5, Apaches. I'm Brandon Seal. I'm a city, San Antonio. Tonight I'm looking at your lovely life. On June 20th, 1745, the morning broke warm and humid, the moisture from May's rain still lingering in the air over the rolling hills a few miles north of San Antonio. A boy from town, only about 10 years old, wandered out into the countryside, tending his family's livestock, which roamed unbranded and unfenced through the grassland that was greening up all around him. Just a half decade before, no San Antonian would have dared to venture so far out of town unguarded. Because the 1730s were marked by unceasing attacks by the Apaches against the humble village along the San Antonio River. San Antonians at the time couldn't understand the unique animosity that the Apaches seemed to harbor toward them, chalking it up to their barbarism and deceitfulness. As barbaric as the Apaches may have seemed to the Spaniards, however, they were the recognized rulers of the Texas Plains in 1700, and it was the Spaniards who had intruded into their territory. The Apaches had descended from the northern Great Plains into Texas sometime in the 1400s and split into two groups. The Mescalero Apaches drifted west toward New Mexico and Chihuahua. The Lipan Apaches settled in central and southwest Texas, from the hill country down to the Rio Grande. The Apaches weren't truly a nation in the European sense of the word, or even a confederation like the Hassanai in East Texas. If they seemed deceitful to Europeans, it's because they lived and fought in bands with broad, loose allegiances, which made it famously difficult for Europeans to negotiate with them, as no band felt obliged to respect the promises of another, and warriors were free to come and go as they pleased. The Apaches were quasi-agricultural, planting crops each spring, but they were also among the first horse Indians of the Great Plains, capturing and breaking the Spanish Mustangs that arrived in the 1600s. The mobility of the horse and their mastery of it turned them into a devastating force to their enemies, and indeed the word Apache seems to have come from a rival nation's word for enemy. And chief among their enemies were the relatively prosperous, sedentary Hassanai tribes of East Texas, whose villages abounded with agricultural surpluses and trade goods from across the continent. Raiding and warring against the Hassanai was a centuries-old Apache tradition, but sometime around 1700, the Hassanai started to fight back, alongside bearded allies with fire sticks who worshipped images of a cadaver hanging on a cross. The source of these newcomers, the Apaches soon realized, was a little village along the San Antonio River where the Apaches had long been accustomed to raiding and trading. The Apaches announced their presence to San Antonians in 1723, when they stole 80 of the Presidio's horses in a daring daylight raid. The San Antonio Presidio, however, manned by veterans of the new Spanish frontier, knew the importance of taking the offensive and quickly mounted up in pursuit of the Apaches, surprising them in their camp near the San Saba River, slaughtering 34 warriors and taking 20 women and children captive. These hostages purchased a fragile eight years of peace for San Antonio, interrupted by periodic but non-fatal raids as the Apaches sized up these new enemies and waited to see if the settlement would even survive. But fledgling San Antonio did survive, and in 1731, the Apaches decided to try their luck again. On September 18th, 1731, they attacked the town in broad daylight, riding into the Plaza de Armas and driving off 60 horses. They then lingered in town for a suspiciously long time, however, daring the townsfolk to challenge them. The Presidio commander mustered what forces he could and launched a counterattack, and the Apache raiders retreated, willingly, a little too willingly, it seemed. They drew the soldiers further and further out of town until suddenly, just a few miles north in the first foothills of the Balcones escarpment, the 40-man Spanish troop ran into an Apache ambush of some 500 warriors. Somehow, some way, the troop avoided disaster. Either the Apaches sprung the trap too early, or perhaps the captain sniffed them out in time to retreat. Either way, he was lucky to leave the field with only two dead and thirteen wounded. The Apaches, for the time being, withdrew. Drawing on the lessons of 1723, however, San Antonians knew that they couldn't just sit and wait and hope that the Apaches would leave them alone. Instead, a punitive expedition was organized. 
But logistical delays, changes in leadership, and uncertainty as to where the Apaches had gone delayed their response almost a year. Finally, more than one year later, on October 22, 1732, the expedition rode out, led personally by the governor of Texas at the head of 157 soldiers and 60 Mission Indians, a substantial number of the men of fighting age from San Antonio's communities. No town in northern New Spain would ever mount so many expeditions out into the wilderness or project its power onto the frontier the way that early San Antonio would. It's a testament to the toughness of these early settlers. The punitive expedition marched into the hill country where they picked up the trail of the Apache raiders. They engaged in several small skirmishes with Apache bands, but could never draw the main Apache force into battle, even as they continued to press deeper into Apache territory. Finally, they came upon a large Apache camp on the San Saba River. They lured out the warriors into a brief battle, in which the Apaches predictably broke rank and began to flee, attempting to lure the San Antonians after them in order to string them out across the hill country. But the San Antonians were starting to learn the Apaches' tactics, and this time, they didn't bite. They let the warriors flee, then turned and attacked the camp, taking 30 women and children as hostages and returning to San Antonio with their prizes on December 22nd. It worked. In early 1733, the Apaches came to San Antonio begging for peace in exchange for their loved ones. Thinking the Apaches chastened, San Antonians accepted the peace and released the hostages. Yet we always seem to learn our last lesson a little too well, and like to flatter ourselves that our opponents don't learn nearly so well as we do. Just as the San Antonians were learning the Apaches' tactics, the Apaches were learning how to deal with the San Antonians as well. All they had to do to get their hostages released, they realized, was to say the word truce to the soldiers and tease the missionaries about the prospect of a mission in their territory, which they did. Later that same year, in 1733, and only a few months after they got their hostages back, the so-called truce was broken. One afternoon, a small band of Apaches materialized suddenly from the brush outside of town and attacked two Presidio soldiers on patrol. Within sight of town, they tortured, mutilated, and killed the soldiers, their screams carrying even to the outlying missions. Everyone in town assumed that a further onslaught was imminent. The Mission Indians began to flee back into the countryside. Soldiers sent their families back to safer parts of New Spain. Townfolk, vecinos, or neighbors as they called themselves, fortified their homes as best they could. The governor knew that San Antonio needed help, but had little in the way of resources to offer them. There was one man, however, still floating around the Presidios of Texas, that knew more about fighting Apaches than anyone else alive. Indeed, that he still was alive in 1733. 40 years after he had been left behind in East Texas as a 15-year-old was itself a miracle, and no minor proof of his exceptionalism. I'm talking, of course, about our old friend, José de Urrutia, our Spanish natty bumpo from episode 1, who went native in 1693 and rose to command the Hassanai Indians fighting against the Apaches. He had married into the Presidial officer class, pairing off with the daughter of Captain Diego Ramon, the commander of the Rio Grande Presidio, and effectively the military commander of Texas until his death in 1724. By 1733, Urrutia had served in San Antonio, in East Texas, and along the Rio Grande, and had made himself generally invaluable to Spanish officials who needed his relationships with the native tribes. Urrutia took office as captain of the San Antonio Presidio on July 23, 1733, just when the Apache menace was peaking, and when the Presidio unit was down to 30 men, the smallest it had been since San Antonio's founding. By this time, Apaches avoided outright attacks on the town proper, preferring to terrorize vecinos and mission Indians unfortunate enough to venture outside of town. San Antonio effectively entered siege mode, its citizens too afraid to leave the city limits without military escort. This was the world that our 10-year-old San Antonio boy would have been born into. During this time, the outlying ranches and farms went untended, trade nearly stopped, and food became scarce. Indeed, the general Apache terror of the 1730s was a not insignificant contributor to the mission's success during that same period at recruiting from other tribes, who flocked to the protection of the mission fathers. Urrutia knew what he had to do, take the offensive and mount another expedition against the Apaches. Yet he had no money, and had been told not to expect any. 
And so in 1739, Urrutia came up with a plan that would address both his money problem and his Apache problem. He scraped together what men and resources he could and went out after the Apaches, surprising them after so many years of inactivity and capturing several dozen men, women, and children. But instead of just holding them as hostages, he sold them down into Mexico as slaves. Slavery was a fate worse than death for these free-spirited horse warriors, but more importantly for Urrutia, it generated proceeds for the defense of the town. As before, the Spaniards had learned their lesson and changed the rules in order to re-establish a balance. The new tactic worked, for a time anyhow. When José de Urrutia died in 1741, his son, Toribio, took over the command of the Presidio and the Apache slaving strategy without missing a beat. The mission fathers, led by Father Benito Fernández de Santa Ana from episode 3, were of course outraged by this tactic, which not only violated their sense of propriety, but also undermined their attempts to establish a mission amongst the Apaches, which these martyrhood-minded missionaries were still intent on doing. By 1745, however, the Apaches were fed up with the slaving raids and fed up with the mission fathers babble about gods and sons and organized themselves to do something about it. On June 30th, 1745, at the same time as our San Antonio boy searched for his family's cattle in the hills, a small force of Apaches had slipped into town. They lit fire to several buildings, turned out the Presidio's horse herd, and generally made a great commotion before fleeing out of town themselves. The bells of San Fernando rang out, calling the militia to action and calling townsfolk in from the countryside. Our San Antonio boy heard the bells, probably not for the first time in his life, but for the first time in many years, and immediately understood the danger he was in. As he turned toward town and began running, the sound of his own panicked breath and footfalls caused him to stop in his tracks. If the Apaches were in town, it also meant they were all around town and could be lurking behind every bush. He froze for a minute and decided on a different course home through the more heavily wooded draws and up over the hilltops where he could scout out the countryside around him. And as he crawled up one of the last hills north of town and peeked over the summit, he was horrified to see below him an Apache force of some 350 warriors waiting in ambush, just as they had done in 1731. Only something about these Apaches made clear that they weren't going to make the same mistake that their fathers had when they let the Presidio Command get away. They would lure the San Antonians out onto the plains, encircle them, slaughter them, and then have their way with the town. Somehow, in the face of 350 grown men who would have liked nothing more than to take our little boy hero's scalp or bash his brains open on a rock, this boy had the courage to collect himself and quietly, but determinedly, continue his way toward town. Amidst the commotion of the town folk and the mustering of the militia and presidial soldiers, the little boy found his way to Captain Torribio de Urrutia and got his attention. He told him what he had seen, and the captain had the good sense to believe him. Captain Urrutia changed his strategy. He sent the boy on to Mission Valero, the closest and one of the largest missions, to report what he had seen and to beg them to mobilize all the men they could to come to the aid of the town. Valero's mission Indians responded, mobilizing over 100 men who moved into town while Urrutia attempted to ambush his ambushers. The Apaches, who held the high ground north of town, saw Urrutia marching out, but not in the direction that they were trying to lure him. He moved out to the west, confusing the Apaches. Soon, they saw the Valero Indians barricading the streets, taking up positions in defense of the town, and ringing the bells to rally reinforcements from the other missions. Just as the Apaches were figuring out that something had gone wrong, Urrutia hit them on their flank. At that instant, the Apaches knew that they had lost the element of surprise, even as they probably still had the numbers, and broke into full flight. This was a special moment in San Antonio's history. Each of San Antonio's communities, civilian, military, and missionary, had come together to defend the town. It's an example of what we talked about in the previous episode, of facing danger together as the formative fact of the early San Antonio experience. San Antonio's vecinos, isleños, indios, soldiers, and friars had stood and fought and won side by side, inspired by the example of one heroic 10-year-old boy whose name, unfortunately, has been lost to history. 
It all inspired a feeling of unity that brought about the great political compromise of 1745 that we talked about in episode 3, which saw the civilians and missionaries resolve their grievances in a deal brokered by Father Fernandez and guaranteed by Captain Torribio de Urrutia. The Battle of 1745 made an impression on the Apaches, who ceased their raids and undertook now more serious negotiations with Father Fernandez for peace and for a mission in the hill country. But as a condition, they demanded that Captain Urrutia cease his slaving raids into their territory. Father Fernandez, his esteem at an all-time high, pled with Captain Urrutia to abandon the tactic. In a sense, Father Fernandez told him, Urrutia had beaten the Apaches. Yet because they weren't a proper nation, they could never surrender. There would always be lingering bands to be dealt with, but at some point, the slave raids would backfire and give courage to a now desperate foe, which would only serve to prolong the terror that San Antonians still felt every time they left the city limits or looked north at night. And consider the alternative, Father Fernandez told him. What if they could establish a mission amongst the Apaches? Even if they could never persuade them to pound their lances into plowshares, they could still establish a presence north of town, a presidio to help ward off future attacks, and even a trading outpost where San Antonio merchants, like Urrutia himself, who dabbled with trade on the side as we've seen in previous episodes, might find new markets for their goods. Urrutia went along. In his first patrols of 1749, he didn't kill and he didn't sell into slavery as war captives. After one wildly successful raid early in the year, he captured four Apache chiefs, brought them to San Antonio, and unlike in the past, he treated these like honored guests. They were fed, brought gifts, and catered to by Father Fernandez as well, who thanked Divine Providence for bringing them together as friends. The Spanish didn't want war with the Apaches, he told them. He reminded them of their overtures of friendship, of the virtues of the Christian faith, and of the benefits of trade with New Spain. Alternatively, there was little he could do for them if they chose the path of war. Yet he trusted in their fundamental goodness, Father Fernandez told them, the good cop to Urrutia's bad cop, and sent them home as messengers of peace and as a sign of San Antonian's good intentions. One month later, in March of 1749, the Apache chiefs returned, in peace, with another dozen or so chiefs in tow. Father Fernandez, Torribio de Urrutia, and members of the city council were there to greet them. To honor the occasion, the San Antonians did what any proper San Antonian would have done. They held a great barbecue. They exchanged gifts and promises of peace. They buried a horse, hopefully already dead, and they buried a hatchet, as in the cliché as symbols of putting their warlike ways behind them. In exchange, the Apaches accepted conversion to the Christian faith and swore allegiance to the Spanish king, and they agreed to the establishment of a mission in their territory. The Apache Peace of 1749 was the culmination of Father Fernandez's life's work in San Antonio. A year later, in 1750, at the age of only 43, he fell ill and had to retire to Caretro where he lived out the remaining decade of his life. In his 19 years in San Antonio, he had guided the missions to the peak of their prosperity, moderated the Presidio's warlike ways, brokered a compromise between the original vecinos or settlers of San Antonio and the Isleños arriving from the Canary Islands, and established peace with the same Indians who had nearly wiped the settlement off the map the year he arrived. Yet it was also the high point of San Antonio's early existence, and an unequivocal declaration of their intention to reside upon this harsh frontier for a long time. San Antonians had, of their own initiative, and with virtually no aid from the Crown, fought their greatest opponents to a truce, something that most other towns on the new Spanish frontier would never come close to. They had won their place on this frontier, and even a hundred years later they would still be reminding each other of this fact. All that said, there was something else motivating the Apaches to seek peace with San Antonio in 1749. Sometime in 1743, a different kind of horse Indian appeared in San Antonio's historical record. Their faces painted black and red, wearing only animal skins when they wore anything at all, and moving about on horseback as naturally as if they were born on them. These new horse warriors had started to press down on the Apaches from the northern plains a few decades prior, pushing them into conflict with the Spaniards. Without detracting from Father Fernandez's diplomacy or from San Antonian's bravery, 
1749, the Apaches were actually looking for allies anywhere they could find them against these Nemerna, as the new masters of the plains called themselves. We will come to know them as the Comanches. Thank you for listening. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe and leave us a review. Because if everyone who listened to this podcast left a review on iTunes or Stitcher, it would launch San Antonio's story to the top of the charts. For more information and old episodes, you can also visit our website at brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering was performed by Stephen Bennett. A special thanks to my friend Noel McKay for letting us use his song, Mi San Antonio. I'd also like to thank Donald Chipman for his work, Spanish Texas, 1519-1821. It's the best English-language survey of early Texas history, and like Professor Jesus de la Teja and the other contemporary historians that I'm relying on, he uses great primary sources in the archives of Bear County, Mexico City, and Spain to really open up the period. You can find links to these books that I'm recommending on our website as well, brandonseal.com. By buying these books through our links, you're helping support the series, which we appreciate. And I'd also like to recommend that you check out the Institute of Texan Cultures. It's the best resource on, frankly, all the cultures that have contributed to Texas's identity, but especially for the native cultures who constituted the majority of the population here until well into the 19th century.